And then one night we went out to the pub afterwards and we're all sitting around talking about what our dads did. And since we were all in marketing, most of our dads worked in marketing. And then the discussion got around to Andy and Andy's like, uh, my dad used to be a spy. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Werner Stiller's spectacular defection to the West in 1979 inflicted one of the Cold War's most serious blows to the Stasi. At the time he was working as a case officer for the main directorate for reconnaissance, the Stasi's Foreign Intelligence Division, where he was in charge of scientific espionage in the West. We speak with Stiller's son Andy, who, although he was 11 months old at the time of his father's defection, met his father in later life. Also included in this interview is Scott Kalanico, who is producing a documentary film with Andy covering his father's abandonment of his family and his country, as well as the story of a young man in his journey to discover the man who was his father, the spy. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a written review in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. You can really help us get new guests. If you can spare it, I'm also asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are always welcome. And you get the sought after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. We welcome filmmakers Scott Kalanico and Andy to our Cold War Conversation. Andy has a rather interesting father, who we will uh, move on to in in a while. And uh, Scott is a filmmaker who stumbled across this story really by chance. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, uh, basically, I came over to the UK about 10 years ago um, to go to graduate school on journalism. And after I graduated, I, of course, needed a job. So I wound up uh, working in the computer software field, which is where I'd, I'd worked before. Um, so I'd gotten a job with a company up in Scotland. And after I'd been there a couple of years, we hired a, a German sales representative, which turned out to be Andy. And when Andy started, he was actually directly across from me. So I could hear him talking on the phone all day in German. And I was like, oh, I remember you know, more German than, than I thought. And then we all started playing football. Andy might have a different recollection. This is my recollection of it. <laughs> uh, and then one night we went out to the pub afterwards and we're all sitting around talking about what our dads did. And since we were all in marketing, most of our dads worked in marketing. And then the discussion got around to Andy and Andy's like, uh, my dad used to be a spy. And, and I just had to stop the conversation right there. And this was like, oh, right, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> Let's go back to that. And, and Andy started telling me the story. And that's how I, I found out about it. Wow. Wow. And Andy, had you told many other people that your dad was a spy? Um, probably not. Not not since we were back in Scotland. No, no. Um, only say close friends and I don't even know why why it came up you you mentioned that we were talking about dads it was something in relation to that yeah, yeah. I remember we, we might might have one or two beers 
<laughs> somehow I started talking about it. And I, I remember you, you took immediate interest in, in the story and you actually started, you know, you, your research capacity came fully blown out. Yeah. You started digging into it. So, yeah. No, and, not many. And and your dad wasn't really any spy. I mean, he was working for the East German intelligence services, which people will know as the Stasi. Uh, Scott, I can imagine your interest was massively piqued by that. Well, even even if it if, even if Andy's dad had been working for the BND, the uh, the West German intelligence service, you would have been interested. But East German intelligence service is um, possibly more interesting. Yeah, I mean, that was, at, of course, when I first heard the story, I was just like, oh, your dad's a spy, crazy, you know. But then as I looked into it, like then, as Andy said, I started doing some research and I didn't realize how big of a spy he was. I mean, he was big in the States. Um, you know, he was, uh, when he defected, it was national news. So it, it was a big deal. And then, yeah, as I read, out, read more about it, um, he wasn't just kind of the run of the mill Stasi. He worked for the, the H, HVA, help for Voltog Aufklärung. And uh, so he was in the foreign intelligence service of the Stasi. He wasn't like the dig through the garbage guys or spy on your neighbors. He was an actual um, spy in the um, the science and technology division. Right, right. And this was uh, Marcus Wolf's area yeah. as well, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Marcus. We can come back to that later. But there's yeah, <laughs> there's a there's it's a, a story bit of a, yeah. 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 We've got Marcus a we've Wolf. got a we've got a lot to cover here. Yeah. Andy, did your father have a cover job for this, or or did the family know that he was a uh, work for the Stasi? No, the family didn't know. Um, the, the Stasi proclaimed that my mom must have had some sort of knowledge, but to the day today, my mom maintains she never knew what he was up to. So he worked in in a, a science science party. I think he worked for the university partially. Um, his his background was physics. So he studied physics and he worked in that area. Um, and East Germany was different. You know, people tend to in certain areas work long hours. In certain areas, certainly in the science community, um, and he easily found excuses for his, you know, being away. You know, these days I think it would stick more out if someone would have a separate, separate, uh, um, you know, flat and, and is, is away in the evenings. But in East Germany at the time, it didn't really stick out. No, right. And what did your mother do? Did your mother work as well? My mom did indeed, yeah. She's a biochemist, uh, um, so she worked in the biochemistry field. Um, so, yeah. Scott, uh, Andy's father's role within the stars, he involved travel to the West as well, I believe. He went over a couple times. He went over for one of the World Cup championships um you know he told me about that and then i read about it and i think that was the main thing that he'd really done he was mostly traveling around in the east a lot like he would go to helsinki uh, he go to budapest a lot um and other kind of eastern Bloc countries but yeah he, w- he went to the west a couple times um he was allowed to go over there and <laughs> as long as he came back of course right right and w- what was his motivation for working for the for the bnd what what changed his mind well, I mean, I guess uh, both. Yeah, Andy, you go. Well, ahead. no, I'm interested in both of your answers. And Andy, you go first. Yeah. Well, there are two stories to that. And uh, my father always jumped from one to the other and then backwards. So one one motivation he had was, which he proclaimed, that he was un- unsatisfied and unhappy with the system. He, he eventually thought communism doesn't work the way it should. 
um, and the restriction of freedom and the restriction of movement. There is another story to it, and my father was quite an adventurer. He, he, he got easily bored, and uh, I think the, the adventure of being a spy, but then obviously, you know, working for another agency was part of it. The thrill, the the kick he got out of it. Certainly, it wasn't. You know, it's like you changing a job. You know, there are not a lot of consequences, but being a spy and then suddenly turning and working for a different agency, there's a little bit more involved and a little bit more risk involved. And I think the risk, the thrill, was partly part of it as well. Right. Scott, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll have to agree with Andy. There's probably a, a lot of factors there. Yeah, it, what's really interesting is how his dad wa- was pretty much, uh, you know, played by the book, played by the by the 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 role he was given to. Like he was like the party secretary, I think, when he was working at the Stasi. So he'd go around mm-hmm. and collect everyone's dues. So he he was, you know, as far as the system was concerned, he was he was top notch. You know, um, <clears throat> yeah. And I, but I think like Andy's pointed out, like like Werner got recruited out of college like he was approached by the stasi while he was still mm-hmm. at Karl marx university and so he got that was basically the only job he had that he knew of you know so he mm-hmm. was actually almost it was almost almost 10 years right andy it was like yeah 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 so you know i could see him getting bored and then maybe looking for something uh, a little different yeah do you remember scotty there's one incident which he's describing one one of the documentaries is he actually worked closely with another colleague who got promoted ahead of him right and i think that was one of the things he didn't understand because he was he was a, he was a quite driven man a very intelligent man um and you know out from what i know the other person who got a promotion above him it wasn't wasn't as bright perhaps or so he, he might have taken the person as well so um, it's a combination of factors i would say yeah and that's interesting because that's a common thread you see amongst other agents who decide to work for the other side that being certainly being overlooked in terms of promotion i think that mm. was uh, one of Aldrich Ames's um, mm-hmm. motivations yeah. for uh, him working working for the Soviets, but we're not here to talk about him. We're here to talk <laughs> about your your father. Now, I understand there was another woman involved as well. Indeed, I, I think it is well known that my father was quite keen on the other gender, and uh, <laughs> there's been a, there've been a few accidents. Even though he was married to my mom, I think there were three girlfriends and. Uh, there was one particular girlfriend where he suddenly saw that opportunity to the other side. We might start talking a little bit more about later, but during the affair, it turned out that the brother of that lady was indeed working in, in the West, and my father in that moment saw the opportunity to contact, I uh, think, and that where the first approaches actually to, to get in contact with the BND. But yeah, you're probably talking about that woman now. Right, yeah. right. Because I think I think the Stasi weren't too keen on extramarital uh, affairs, were they? <laughs> Ooh, well, obviously, it's always the same with the system. Like what you preach and what you do are often are often two different things. No, um, having affairs outside the marriage is probably not really the concept of we are all brothers and sisters working together. But a lot of people. Um, actually had uh, 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 yeah affairs. Um, I think East Germany, in, in opposite to West Germany, was very liberal 
if it came to sexuality, you know, all these nudist teachers. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think there was a high level of tasting outside marriage. And my father was certainly one of these candidates who really enjoyed that. Right. Yeah, yeah and I was just going to say, yeah, that's actually – in part of his files somewhere, the part that Andy can get to, not the part that I've seen, but uh, that, yeah, his, his superiors were, were knew about what was going on and they were telling him to, you know, mind his manners, watch his P's and Q's. And that was maybe what was, you know, kind of frustrating to him as well. Right. You need to see, as a matter of fact, um, we mentioned that my father traveled uh, uh, majorly the East Block and in some sort of way, he had a bit of leverage where he could go. So he used these um, travels to poach um, uh, uh, people of interest to work for the Stasi or to reveal information. And that usually included either alcohol or women or both together as well as part of the whole poaching an individual so you know his superiors were certainly had knowledge of you know in certain areas that it wasn't always a perfect marriage yeah but presumably they were quite pleased with his overall performance in the job though at, at this point absolutely he was actually quite successful in both um poaching um people to real information then getting valuable information his one of his core interests were nuclear science. Um, obviously, the Germ- Germ- East Germany was far behind in terms of nuclear science than West Germany was. So that was a great interest. And he made, um, as, as it was revealed when he defected, and he, he, he uh, um, uh, unraveled this wave of, of, of people getting arrested, he, he got quite high figures within um, the industry in West Germany to real information. So, yes, he was successful. He, he, you got the result. Right, right. So prior to meeting this woman who had a brother in, was it a brother in West Germany? It was a brother, yeah. Right. Um, he hadn't made contact with the BND. Not that I'm aware of. Scotty, you might have seen something different in, in notes, but no. Yeah he, yeah, he said he'd try, but he didn't know what he was doing. He, he actually, yeah. the quote I think he told me was, I was stupid, I didn't know what I was doing. So, yeah, yeah. The, the, this was the first successful one. His first attempt was quite risky as well. I mean, he, he was, you must, he already must have made the decision for himself he wants it because, you know, going via your girlfriend or, or your affair to then get information out that you want to have contact with the BND, that's quite risky. Uh, you know, that could have turned around quickly against him. And as we all know, East Germany, why was the Stasi so powerful? Because they had ears everywhere. They turned the normal normal person, your neighbor, into an ear, into a listening, listening device. Um, so she could have easily worked with the Stasi as well. Who knows? That could have been the end of him even trying to convince her to get in contact with, with, with her brother. But then my father had, has this incredible skill. Women love him or loved him. Um, he, 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 they just love him. So, yeah, risky. <laughs> yeah. But I think to, to be an agent, you've got to be good at working with people and getting mm-hmm. their confidence and, and being able to influence them. And that and that does come across, I think, in so many accounts that I've read of mm-hmm. some of these agents is, is that you've got to be great, great people. Yeah. People, people, if you see what I Absolutely. mean. Absolutely. 
and that what my father absolutely was that he was a people he started obviously in his second life second career as a like, salesman in banking and he was very successful and the reason why he was very successful he was a people person and he knew how to to speak to someone and he knew you know how how to engage uh, that yeah. was his asset um so certainly yeah and you knew what buttons to press to uh, get somebody to do do the, the bidding cuz i i did read somewhere that a lot of former stasi officers um had worked well worked as salespeople once the wall mm-hmm. came down and you can see how they could you know almost transfer some of those skills over to becoming good salespeople and your father's a great illustration with his with his further life in the in Certainly. in in the West. But we'll we'll come yes. on to that in a moment. So, um, Scott, how was um, Werner communicating with with the BND from from East Germany? Yeah. Oh uh, no, this is kind of the the cool spy part where there were you know there were a lot of dead drops. Uh, they were doing uh, letter exchanges in Volkspark. Friedrichhain in uh, East Berlin, um, and there was a there's a whole bit uh, where they were hiding stuff underneath a log, and him and and Helga, his his uh, mistress at the time, and they would she would help him uh, decode the messages, you know, and the whole listening to the uh, the numbered sequences on the radio, and then they were also passing stuff at moving dead drops through trains. They would go to the um, the, the hop on a train at a train station in the east and they'd hide the uh, packages up in the bathroom, like in the bathroom of the train compartment. So the train would go through to the west and they'd pick up the packages there. So it's like all that, all the crazy, you know, spy top secret stuff that, that you heard about is, is real. <laughs> and and what was he passing over? Was he passing over details of who he was running in, in the west or was he passing over other information? Uh, I don't know exactly what he was passing over. I'm just thinking probably just internal documents. They were also the B and D I think was giving him stuff um, mm-hmm. to kind of pass back. So he could kind of say that he got this stuff, uh, this information mm-hmm. out of them as well. Um, but specifics, I, I don't know. It's mostly um, kind of, uh, you know, technical documents that he was working on. It, it was, I mean, the process didn't, didn't go over years and centuries. It was actually that, not a long period communication with the BND. Initially, it was the BND was very careful who they're dealing with, and what they wanted is proof of information, like proof of the, the 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 potential of information he could deliver. So that was the initial internal documents, internal processes. He did not reveal um, assets in the West at that stage, so he didn't drop the bomb. Or it was more like the BND were asking for certain information to to verify he he is he is indeed what he what he yeah. is uh, because obviously another game of the Stasi was placing agents in the West making them believe it's a defector and while they're not so the BND was quite careful as well and my father was careful obviously if you give everything you have immediately you know, where's the point of working with you? So he certainly was holding back information mm. as well to get that step into the vest. Yeah. That's his sales technique already yeah. working <laughs> away. Keep marketing and keep him waiting. <laughs> Again, he was a very smart man and he was always very, he, he wasn't, well, he was maybe a bit clumsy at the end, but he certainly wasn't clumsy in the beginning. I remember a story he told me, um, that was part of this recruitment process or his, his education 
and there were final tests. And one of these final tests was him being tasked to retrieve a package from the west side. So to, to step over the border and to retrieve information and then to come back. But the test was actually to let someone loose into the West. You know, you're mm. over the border. There is no one with a pistol anymore. You could just run for it. Um, and he was on the other side. And so certainly that went through his, his head. But what he actually saw on the way was a package, uh, a cigarette package. I think it was a Russian, Russian brand. Could have been East German, maybe East German. But it's certainly an East brand. And the moment you saw that cigarette packet, he was fully aware that he is still in the East sector and not in the West, and that that test. So he was very good with reading his surroundings, with reading people, and very smart. So, and obviously wow. he came back, and it was, <laughs> yeah. it was counted as a success. Yeah, you know, that's a clever, but, that's a clever trick. I hadn't uh, heard that yeah, right. before. Yeah. That's in. There's a made-for-TV movie that they did in Germany, yeah. uh, Der Rote Jackal. And Der Rote Jackal. All right, yeah, there it was. He's going to get my German right. Um, I think that was from 95, 96, but they do that scene. It's a, it's a, a drama, and they do that yeah. scene. That's right. how the, the movie starts off, yeah. Oh, wow. I'll have to uh, watch out for that, <laughs> even with my limited German. But the, the, the Stasi get on his trail, don't they? or on Helga's trial. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Yeah, the Hel- Helga was a mistress, um, and they 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 start because they were they were doing um, they were mailing letters to the West at to, to safe houses of the West, and the Stasi was able to start picking up on the um, you know because they were opening the the they're opening up the mail and looking through and finding the secret writing and and stuff like that, and so they were able to start pinpointing you know where these letters were coming from. Which was in itself a difficult task. It sounds easy with the, with the technology we have these days, but because there were post boxes all over, over Berlin, and he was obviously living in Berlin, acting from Berlin, there were so many post boxes, it was impossible to really pin it down as, as a movement. Um, it might come later in a minute, but one of the fatal mistakes was actually posting a letter from the outskirts of Berlin and getting getting into a Russian control. And it was one of the parts where it suddenly became, where the game changer, um, where it suddenly was out of his hand. And did he know that they were on his trail? Because he, he arranged uh, exfiltration, didn't he, for him and Helga? Yes, but he knew, he knew. It was, at the end, was actually quite close. So as I just mentioned, he, he acted new, uh, mostly from Berlin, but he was on the outskirts of Berlin on a, on a, a romantic trip 
and um, they were dropping off a letter in the letterbox outside of Berlin. And then I had intercourse <laughs> and I got stopped or got in, like interrupted by a Russian control and the Russian control took the details. And that was the moment. The letter obviously posted from the outskirts of Berlin got intercepted with the writing. But also the, the record file somehow it was just a matter of time. I thought I knew it would make it into the center and that would tie him in. And that's where, where time was suddenly start running against them. Right. So he he then organizes with the BND exfiltration, but I think that that plan changes at the last minute for him because he's he's in the Stasi HQ in Nilmanenstrasse trying to get files. And uh, Scott, do you want to just give a bit more detail on that? Yeah, I mean, before uh, Andy will help me out with this too, but he had been, he'd been, first of all, he, like the BND didn't want him to leave, you know, when you have a double agent, you don't want them to leave their, their inside source because they just want, they just want to get information. So they were trying to convince him to stay. And eventually he was like, no, I got to get out of here. So they wound up getting him a passport so he could come through to the, the West and wound up having the, uh, the wrong eye color. On the passport, yeah. <laughs> so, so he couldn't, you know, it was useless. It was very clumsy. Yeah, he actually many times referred to that period of time as a little bit of a shock. How clumsy the BND acted. It was the passport with the wrong, wrong eye color. There also an incident with a train where he was meant to go onto a train. Um, it was it was running through East Germany. Um, and he was supposed to get on a train, but unfortunately, the station he was meant to go on it wasn't. There wasn't a stop, so the train just passed him while he was at the station. So there were a few errors, but certainly the wrong passport was a big one. Yeah, yeah. So that was the first. That was the first kind of attempt, and then the second one you're speaking about about the at the headquarters on Normanstrasse was he he knew it was time to go. I mean. I'm sure Andy, and of course, will jump in here, but he knew it was time to go. So, but he also knew he needed to bring something with him. So he went mm -hmm. back to the headquarters on Normanstrasse, um, broke into his supervisor's office, uh, forged himself uh, the, the pass that he needed to get through um, at Friedrichstrasse um, to get to, to the West. And then while he was there, he broke open a cabinet uh, containing a bunch of microfilm and just dumped, you know, just dumped it all as much as he could into his briefcase and then walked out the door with that. And I think he tried to get into his um, boss's files as well, but was unable to uh, get into those. He's, he, that was his first attempt. He, attempt. he was in his boss's uh, uh, office and he couldn't open the fortified steel uh, cabinet, but he then had an attempt on the secretary's um, uh, file cabinet and he managed, and there were certainly enough uh, information in there that was valued for him to take. So he had a brief, brief case full of very sensitive um, explosive material yeah, and a pistol. Okay, and and then he he drives to Friedrichstrasse, which I think is about twenty twenty five minutes uh, from Normannenstrasse at the at the time of day that he he was uh, trying to cross. But there there is a uh, when he when he gets there, there is a bit of a hold up for him at the border as well. Yeah, he so he goes in through the secret entrance at Friedrichstrasse, which I always try to find. Every time I'm in there, I try to look for it. people. We had a tour guy said it's across from the Etika, so 
<laughs> if you're ever in, in Friedrichstrasse, look for that. But so he went through this secret door that they would, that then they could go into the West and do dead drops and stuff in the lockers there and also take the, the U-Bahn and the S-Bahn out. So he went to the other side and he's going through the last door and he gets, and there's a, the guard desk there and he presents this forged passport, you know, that he, that he's or forged, uh, pass that he's made for mm-hmm. himself and the, the guard kind of looks it over and is like well this you know this is the wrong form or it was expired or something expired they just, wow yeah. they used a new form which he wasn't aware of yeah and he just kind of, he kind of talked his way out oh, i think the the phrase he said line secretary's ambition doof or my secretary is a, <laughs> a little you know dumb. A bit stupid yeah, yeah. yeah and so convince the guard and Garb, you know, presses the buzzer, the door opens, and it go- opens right onto the track. It's the the U six um, in the basement of Friedrichstrasse, and he, he, I remember that, like you know, in that book he wrote, and, and when he mentioned talked about the escape, he just said that was like the longest, you know, seven minutes of his life because he had to sit there on the platform waiting for the next uh, train to come through before he could, you know, be in the West. Hmm. I, I mean that that's incredible. I mean the nerve to be able to talk. <laughs> your way through the fact you've got expired documents <laughs> on you know the last gate to to be able to get to the west sort of shows his i guess persuasive manner and what you know what what he was he was capable of in a in a tight situation i mean that's incredible i i guess that uh that guard didn't have uh, much of a career. Yeah, after that. I'm, I'm always curious as to what happened to that guy. <laughs> um, so, from my father's perspective, there wasn't another chance. He was too fine. I mean, not only obviously he revealed information to the West, which was pretty much a death sentence anyway. He then obviously opened the fire cabinet. There, the trace, there was no way of returning. Yeah. No, he was dead by that point, and he knew that. He had a gun with him, and I asked him, he, he said he would have used the gun. If it would have come to a showdown, he would have used it because there was no way for out, uh, out for him. Death sentence was already there. His only way was trying to get out, uh, no matter what. Yeah, no, in, in, incredible. I mean, that that's. I, I think I've seen a video on YouTube, which is a recreation of his encounter with that, with that guard. Yeah, that's um, that's in a couple. Of, there's a couple of na- German TV documentaries where they they redid that scene. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the the U-Bahn arrives, and so where where does he go to in in West Berlin? Well, the well the interesting thing about the U-Bahn is that so this is the U-Bahn going to West Berlin, and they had the it was the any station that was close to the wall, the East Germans would shut up. They would they, you know they literally brick over the surface and lock it down. These were the ghost stations, guys mm-hmm. from off and um so the the train still had to go through like two of the the u-bahn had to go through like two of those before it got to the west and every time it goes through one of those stations the train slows down and you can see the guards like east german guard border guards on the platform with guns just watching to make sure nobody hops out of the train and so we had to go through a couple of those stations before he was free so then you know doing all the escape and then having to go through that was was pretty nerve-wracking yeah, I I remember riding through those when I was in Berlin before the war came down, and I used to actually make a point of travelling those lines with the really? ghost stations because it was just so weird. You were taking the underground train to another country, or mm-hmm. you were underneath another country. I mean, it was it was uh, it was crazy. So, where did he know where to go or who to call once he got to West Berlin? 
he knew where to go. Let's put it that way. Unless Andy knows something that I don't. Well, well, he ended up at the police station, and yeah. they didn't know what to do with him yeah. because he revealed himself as a, a de facto. Um, and I, I don't know which police station it was. Scott, yep. you might. Yeah, it's so it, it's the one. This is kind of where it takes a comical turn. Is that yeah? So he gets out of the U-Bahn. He takes a taxi to Tegel. Uh, you know, we're, yes. and we're gonna, we're going to miss you. We're going to miss you, Tegel. But he takes a taxi yeah. to Tegel. Uh, he finds he was going to fly to Munich, which is where you know the BND headquarters was. Um, but he finds out he misses the last he he missed the last plane. So that's when he turns himself to the airport police. Yeah. And the airport police don't know what to do with him. They're sitting around eating <laughs> cake. And yeah. They invite him to have cake. And then the airport police, because that was in the French sector, they call the French military police. And then the French military police show up, but none of them speak German fluently enough to, to handle the situation. So then they have to call in more people. So eventually... He, he, they get somebody in there that, that says, you're okay. You know, you're safe. We got you. Yeah. Yeah. Because at that point, obviously West, West Berlin was an occupied, um, territory, uh, Mm -hmm. by the British, the French and the, and the Americans and Tegel, as you say, is in the, is in the French, uh, was in the French sector. Okay. And then presumably he is flown to Pulach, the, the headquarters of the BND. Yeah, he, he's flown. He's flown there, and then kind of debriefed, and um, then they keep him. The BND keeps him in Europe for mm-hmm. a few months because they help. He they want his his help with various operations. Right, right, and and how much damage did he do to the Stasi? Do you think Ooh, a lot, a lot? There are two kinds of damages. One are the 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 vast assets they lost. And there was a, a big wave of um, arrests next day made throughout West Germany. Um, actually, as a matter of fact, fact, one of the people who went to jail, um, his daughter, um, who was the same age as my sister at the time when my father defected, they wrote a book together about these experiences they both had, losing their fathers, fathers in one go on one, one thing. Um, the whole spy scenario, but there were a few, and it's uh, like a lot of information. But I think, and Scotty will tell you probably a bit more about it. The biggest hit they gave to for, to East Germany was revealing who Marcus Wolf, giving him a face, because for the West side, obviously they knew who Marcus Wolf Misha is, but they didn't have a face. They didn't know who that individual is, and my father could point him out on 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 photographs and and put a face to a man and the Stasi never took that well. And obviously uh, Eagle, uh, uh, Marcus Wolf and uh, Erich Mieger, they hated him for him. They hated him <laughs> to guts. They wanted him dead uh, no matter what. I think the, the initial sum they offered for his head was a, a million, uh, was it Was it dollars or Easter? It was a million as a figure, just yeah. as, a, as a, a little bit of an encouragement to get him, get him done. Right, right. And uh, the, one of the things that really surprised me about this story is the courier who was the BND courier for him was also working for the Stasi. Yeah, <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, no, I was really surprised by this, but apparently he, he wasn't working on ideological reasons. He was working for monetary reasons and so kept the two jobs completely compartmentalised. Oh, and was basically okay. earning from both intelligence agencies. Yeah. 
Okay, well, we'll we'll double check over that, Ian. Thanks for the pages. Uh, yeah, well, that's okay. You can include that in the film, and we get a little credit there for. Uh... <laughs> no, I'm only I'm only joking. I'm only joking. So, so he's helping the uh, the the BND on on various operations, and presumably, you know, helping them roll up his network of of spies that he had in the West. What what was it? Have you any idea what his deepest penetration agent was that he had in the West? Who was the most influential agent he had? Uh, I know he had somebody that was working at IBM that was pretty, yeah, pretty up yeah. there. That was like the big deal. Um, and then there was a couple of the um, the scientists. Is it Karlsruhe? The wherever they had the 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 nuclear the big nuclear facility in the West. Those were kind of the big ones, right? Um, that, that he was responsible for. Um, yeah, the IBM thing was interesting because that was the whole time when, when the, you know, the East Germans were stealing as much as they could about computers so they could, they could start building their own computer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Robotron was yeah. not uh, up to much, <laughs> up to the standard. No. <laughs> so once they've, the, you know, the, the BND have basically got as much intelligence information out of him as they possibly can, what, what happens to him then? Because presumably the Stasi are still, like, trying to find him. Yeah, I mean, I'll, Andy can pick up. I just want to have this one story that I remember. Actually, I think it was in that Christie book, was that he, at one point, he decided he wanted to go windsurfing in some lake in uh, around Munich. And, and so he he ditched his bodyguards and was surfing, windsurfing on the lake and chatting up some some woman who was hanging out the beach and they finally caught up with her like, you can't you can't do this you know people want you dead so they knew they had to get him out of germany or out of western germany out of the out of the yeah. continent you know so yeah. they brought him up to the cia yeah that was actually quite a tough period because obviously they were quite restricted in movements and by the time they had helga out as well so now he had to spend time with helga and that's where their relationship started to crumble between the two um but it wasn't certainly the fun period he was looking for that freedom because now obviously he was he was detained again he couldn't Mm -hmm. move he he, he was restricted in his movements and who you could talk to so um yeah yeah i mean i was gonna say helga basically says that like she knew as soon as she met him again after the defection they were you know he you know he got what he needed out of her and yeah they, they were nice friends now and that was it you pretty much used her yeah. yeah yeah and what was the impact on your mother and uh your uh sister as well and the rest of the family huge for me it was 11 months old so for me there wasn't an immediate impact at all but it was hard for my sister my sister was seven at the time and obviously my mother, she did not expect that. So you must imagine, you know, you have your family and although it wasn't a perfect marriage, you know, you have a husband and suddenly from one day to the other, a couple of men standing in front of your door and asking where your husband is and accusing of uh, you being a traitor to the country. Uh, that really knocked my mom out. And then there were repercussions after this. Um, we need to leave Berlin. The family needed to settle down somewhere else. My mom got a, a few towns she was allowed to go to, and she 
she had to choose where to, and then we had to leave Berlin. So my sister had to go out of school, complete new environment. Mother, my mother had to go into complete new environment without friends, and it's been difficult for my mom. And anyway, my mom is Hungarian, so she left Hungary for my father to live with him in Berlin, um, which went okay for a while. But then suddenly having to move again to somewhere else with no friends and no family. So she wasn't allowed to have any contact to his side of the family, and we did not. And I tell you what, you know, until I was 11, I did not know his story. I, I heard all about this when the wall came down. I had no clue. Like when I asked for, you know, obviously I was aware there must have been the male part to the whole situation. At one age, you start asking, is your father? But the only thing I got was your father was a bad man. He, was, he, he left us. And that, that was it. And I didn't even see any pictures of him, any photographs. It was all hidden away. Um, yeah, until the war came down. And that was a big revelation for me. And my sister, yeah, I think even today, it's still a thorn in her, in her heart, this, this betrayal being left by your own yeah. father and that she that, that took your heart well it's yeah i can well i can't understand that but i can see that whole betrayal of the of the whole family of um you know his his country at at that time mm. but you know i can understand the reasons for the I- ideological betrayal but obviously the impact on on the family um is huge and when you, you say you were told when the wall came down. I mean, how, how were you told? Did your mum just sit you down and say, I need to tell you a bit more about your father? No, no, it wasn't <laughs> that straightforward. Um, so how did that end up? So my mum got remarried in the time anyway, so she had a husband at the time when, when the wall came down. So I was all a little bit curious. But my father got in touch with his, with his side of the family when the wall came down, when it was safe for him to do so, reconnecting with his mother. Um, and his sisters. Um, and there then, but he was also curious of obviously getting in contact with my mom, sort of. And my mom got, mom got then contact to that family, his side of the family again. And there was an arranged meetup in Frankfurt where he lived at the time, in West Frankfurt, Frankfurt on Main. Um, and we all drove to Frankfurt to meet him. That's when I met him the first. But no one bothered to uh, tell me that is actually my father. So I've been told it's a, a family friend in the West Side, which was quite funny because we didn't have friends in the West Side, as far as I'm, I was aware. But there was a second thing to it as well. I, we actually met his family, my grandmother. But no one told me that's my grandmother either. So there was another story I've been told while we were seeing these people. But at the end of the day, I actually knew who's my grandmother before I knew who's my father. Um, when was actually the moment I knew it was my father? I think uh, was we were sitting together as a family, and I think I guessed it because that mother, who was my grandfather, knew the man we were visiting in Frankfurt. So it all came together. But I knew something was there anyway when my, when I met my father the first time. Meeting this man was, it's hard to explain. He was familiar immediately. And he was, like, you know, close immediately. He wasn't a stranger when I met him. 
in in his mannerism or you you could just tell that there was some connection there i could just there was a connection some connections are hard to explain yeah um like some bonds are hard to explain explain and it was this immediate it, it partially probably was sort of being stunned as well because you know the man i met when i was 11 living in the west was that big successful banker you, you know you drove off there with his porsche um everything around him was just very eloquent very sophisticated and then he took me into his bank building we took the elevator up to the top floor and his big office but it's also the way how he interacted with me he spoke was very you know he was just not a stranger when i met him yeah there was something yeah yeah because he'd had i mean you know after his defection he'd then gone to had he scott he'd worked in the u.s hadn't he and then yeah. had returned to germany and worked in frankfurt yeah he'd gone to actually the cia gave him a new identity when they brought him to the states and then became peter fisher and then they his story is that they gave him a choice of where to, he could go to graduate school because that's what he wanted to do mm. and study business. And he said uh, he'd never seen the Mississippi, so he wanted to go to graduate school in St. Louis. So he <laughs> went to graduate school there, got his MBA, made friends, was a popular guy. And then uh, his professors helped him get a job at um, Goldman Sachs on Wall Street after he graduated. Mm. Also, he yeah, says he, he says he thinks the CIA might have had something to do with that as well. Yeah, because well, because obviously when he is in the recruiting uh, in the in the uh, recruiting process, there was a long break in his CV, and obviously the hiring <laughs> hiring personnel there in in Goldman was curious about his age and the gap in his CV. Uh, I don't even know how you excuse that. There's a there's a funny story. I think one of your dad's friends told that story. It was like I can't remember how the whole, but basically it was the same thing. It was somebody had seen his CV, but like it was a it was a fake CV. We have I think it's in that Christie Christie book or one of these books. They actually have the his fake CV where he said he worked in Frankfurt on Oder and all those other stuff. And <laughs> then and then so the the recruiter was looking at that fake CV and he was like, oh, that 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 looks okay. And then somebody just mentioned, yeah, wait till you see his real CV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. And, you know, did your, I presume your mother kept a, a distance from him, you know, subsequently, you know, he, he let you and, and your sister see him. and mm. There was an agreement. So my mom made it perfectly clear. If you hurt my, if you hurt my kids again, I kill you. So he, he agreed for him to meet, meet us again under the promise that he's not hurting us again, but, you know. Um, but you must see my father was a big love. My, my father, yeah, she she loved him. And although the marriage weren't perfect, when she met him again, there was this, this Werner Stiller again, that charming man who, you know, who has this ability to just get people to follow him it's and i think over the years like um we had fantastic family parties what not it wasn't like my mom and my father whenever we came together started you know arguing no 
we had actually great parties afterwards and, and, and the family coming together. And obviously we spent a little bit more time than with my father's family again there. And my father even um, came with us to Hungary again. My, my, my grandparents, uh, my late grandparents, lived outside from Budapest, outside a bit further out in Jasperini. And my grandmother just loved my father. Obviously, sto- story of his life. Um, <laughs> my, she was like, you know, and as soon as he arrived in Budapest to re-meet my grandparents, oh, he, was, he was a favorite again. I, everything was forgiven. That yeah. was the kind of person. He could, he could <laughs> there was no wrongdoing for him. <laughs> People just, well, eventually there was. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, incredible, incredible, incredible story. And and Scott, you you spoke with uh, Andy's dad on on the phone. I mean that that must have been pretty amazing to um, you know to speak to the man himself. Yeah, I mean for me it was just cool. I was just running around. I get, I get to interview a spy. You know that was that was, that was pretty exciting. Um, yeah, and the funny thing is I had the audio levels all screwed up on my recorder, so. He actually sounds very crackly and, and not very good, but it kind of fits for some reason. But yeah, Andy put me in contact with uh, Werner. And so we had two conversations. Um, the f- second one I think is better because by that time I'd actually done my research and like read more about him and, and, and what his whole story was. And then we were planning to go down to uh, Budapest to film him in a couple months mm-hmm. when, um, you know, Andy told me, actually Andy told me here in Berlin when we were doing some filming that it, it, it had disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. And can you just tell me a bit more about the, the, the circumstances? Yeah. Um, a spectacular my father's life was spectacular it was meant to end my father um yeah tried to commit suicide so he went able um no one could find him there was no contact and he was then well, we, we reported him missing in in hungary and um actually now as a matter of fact he tried to commit suicide he was found they saved his life he ended up in hospital um he released himself so we were bound to see come down to see him later on but he early re- released himself from hospital so my my sister and i we flew over when we got news that he tried to take his life and we saw him in hospital but he wasn't there he wasn't conscious and it was really a close call we had to flew back because i started just a new job in, in berlin and it was actually my first week in a new job so I could flew down, but I had to come back. Um, and then he released himself. And we had a few conversations when he released himself where I, you know, tried to talk him out of it. But um, he was set on it. And then, then he, he disappeared. And for me, I knew the moment he disappeared and we haven't heard for a week that there's probably no good end to it. And eventually in December, they fished him out on uh, uh, out of the Duna in, in Hungary. And that was the end of him. Um, what's, what, what's the reason? Like in life, my father went through many stages in his life, through being a spy, being a successful banker. Um, that ended. He worked then in fashion. He had a franchise in Eastern Europe, a fashion franchise. 
to every of these stories, there was always something and we could spin another story. The reason why this business, uh, franchise business club, he fell out with the owners in, in Prague the, the, who built the business and they, suddenly they changed the model. They wanted upfront payment for the clothes and my father didn't see the point. So just pretty much took the neck delivery of all stores and we're talking about huge stocks, uh, huge stocks just sold it all and disappeared out of the business and left that owner in private without any notice or anything done. It's just, you know, and that's off to the next stage of his life. And he always was very fond of women, of young women till the end. But I think what came together at the end was the, the, the realization that in terms of career, he's, he's, it's done. And in terms of young women, it's not, it's not working anymore. And my father always said, if it doesn't work with the woman anymore, that's him done. And yeah, he kept his promise. Yeah, that's a you know a, a sad end um, to to the it's, to the story. It's sad for us. It wasn't sad for him. And you need to see mm. as much as my father was a people person, and 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 he was good with the people. There was a lot of ego. And a lot of ego. You know, I look at my, I have a two-year-old and I look at my daughter and, you know, when I, when, when I cuddle her and, or look in her face and I, even thinking of I would have to leave her almost gets me like, tearing up. I, I can't even think being without her. For him to, you know, leaving the whole family, but leaving them and then there's a new life and actually being fine with it it takes a lot of ego and it takes a lot of being centered of yourself and then coming back into our life and as, as nothing ever happened, you're back there. And that's the biggest thing between my sister and my father where they never came together. There was no apology. There was no trying to make up for it. It was just, I'm back here, you know, let's get on with it. And that's, that's been him throughout his life. Very, yeah. Very self-centered. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting insight Andy and I really appreciate you um you you sharing that. Um Scott, do you want to tell us a little bit about the the film? Yeah, sure. So we um like I said as I mentioned Andy kind of told me the story a few years back and I just been filming him um pretty much ever since then. I would I used to live in Scotland there too, so I'd show up and film Andy and stuff and the, the this gradually started picking up momentum to the point where we put together a documentary short um just just because we wanted to be able to tell the story in kind of a short way, um be able to see to sell Andy as a main character and just tell an interesting story you know, that, that maybe hadn't been told to English speaking people before. So we put together this short and um, it's called Betrayal, oddly enough, as we've mentioned Betrayal a lot. And uh, we were set to premiere at Tribeca Film Festival uh, this year in New York, but obviously uh, COVID-19 had other, other uh, ideas for us. But um, what we wound up doing is we've uh, licensed the film to the New Yorker magazine and it's going to premiere online as part of the, part of their doc series, uh, probably later in the summer or in the fall. Great. Great. And how, how easy was it getting, you know, the extra information for the film? Um, yeah, well, I mean, one, I'm in, I'm calling, talking to you from Berlin. Uh, one of the reasons I moved here is just also number one, to get away from the Scottish weather. But uh, although, you know, Edinburgh still has a place in my heart. 
but uh, I needed to be away from the rain. But also I knew I needed to be in Berlin just to kind of, if I, I was going to know this story, I needed to know the city. And, and then also uh, put me closer to the, the Stasi archives, which they've got a, a, an amazing amount of material here. So I've been going back and forth there this whole time and um, digging through the archives and ordering Andy's dad's file and, and uh, telling Andy to order his dad's file and just digging through all these documents. And so that was great to be able to come here and, and have access to so much material. Yeah. And and what have you learned that you didn't know at the start with uh, the, this project, particularly with digging into the files and some of the, you know, the actual hard evidence of the story? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I shared a couple of these pictures with you. Um, these are the, the the pictures from the file. The uh, that after Andy's dad defected, of course, they had a you know they they wrote lots of reports. They loved their reports over there. So uh, when and when Werner went to Friedrichstrasse, he left his car there. And so one of the most interesting things is there's a series of photos of they're taking pictures of everything that was in his car. And he had like, he had like a bunch, there was a bunch of jewelry in there and he had this bag that was in the trunk. So it looks like he was driving around ready to go at any time. He had a bunch of maps of West Germany in there. He had, he had like 50,000 marks hidden inside a chocolate, a chocolate bar box and, and just, uh, you know, interesting stuff like that, which I didn't know about. So I guess, you know what we're saying he's probably just driving around with everything in his car ready to go just in case and then the other kind of really interesting thing that i i i read was the uh there's a report in the file uh we talked about in the story randy's dad defected went to the airport at tagle and had to sit there well there's a report in the file of 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 an an im a, a stasi work stasi informant who was working for either the airport police or the Berlin police. So they're in the room when he defected and they wow. they filed this report about this is what happened when he was in the room. They, they, he wanted a vodka. So they made it to, <laughs> they had to go to the gas station and get him a, a flask of vodka. And then he kept getting on the phone and trying to, he was insisting on calling somebody in, in uh, West Germany and, and nobody was answering. He was getting more agitated, but it was just this fly on the wall report uh, of them telling the Stasi, is they every, Everything he did, this is everything he said, and um, they had this crazy amount of insight over there. So that was a pretty interesting document to see. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, seeing it yeah. from one of the you know yeah. one of the Stasi agents on the uh, on on the inside there. Did you speak to any Stasi officers? Um, uh, yeah, we definitely want to talk to Andy's uh, mom and Andy and, and Andy's sister. So that was kind of been the main focus right now. But yeah, we'll, we'll definitely talk. There's actually one. It's the son of one of the guys that that Andy's dad turned in. His son is a tour guide at Hohenschönhausen um, prison. So we want to talk to him. Mm. Um, and so there's a few over here, but we haven't interviewed any yet as of yet. Yeah, no. Wow. But that's that's on that's on that's on the books. Wow. Okay. Is he English speaking? Um, I don't know. We haven't been in contact with him okay. yet. Sorry, um, I'm, yeah, no, I'm already <laughs> looking for other guests. I didn't even to take over. I didn't. <laughs> How can listeners of the podcast help help support you in the in the production of the film? Yeah, we're right now, we're kind of in the midst of, of setting up a fundraising page. But right now what they can do is go to my website, scottclonico.com uh, slash 
Betray- betrayal was the short. That's what we're calling it. But if you just go to my website, scottcolano.com, you'll see a picture of Andy's dad with a, a black bar over his eyes. Uh, you can click on that. We've got a, a trailer um, to you can watch, kind of see like a little bit more about the story and some information about the film. And uh, you can go over there, drop us a line, and we'll keep you in contact and let you know. Uh, that's yeah, scottcolano.com is my website. Great. Well, we're, we'll put that link in the show notes, and we'll also put the uh, trailer in there as well because i think it gives a really good taste as to what you're trying to uh, produce there so that'll certainly whet the cold war conversation listeners appetites and we have further photos videos and information on this episode in our show notes which will show as a link in your podcast app don't forget if you'd like to get one of those cold war conversations coasters help keep us on the air then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.